Uh, several years back, <clears throat> several years back, I introduced you all to a website that I'd forgotten about until this week when it came back to me. It's called ilikegiving.com, and it's filled with stories of ordinary people who uh, have found the joy of giving. And in particular, at that time, I showed you a video. I want to show it again because I saw it again and was just reminded of how much I enjoyed this video. A video of an ordinary person who doesn't have a whole lot but found a way to give and in so doing displays for us the spirit of generosity. And what we need to be asking throughout this morning is, do I have the spirit of generosity? And what do we need in order to carry a spirit of generosity? First, just watch this particular person who doesn't have a lot but finds a way to give. Ha, ha, ha. 
<laughs> Is she cute or what? You gotta love her. Oh. oh yeah, she's just wondering how they're making this all work at the end there. <laughs> what a sweet mom. Her daughter trying to get her to stop driving, right? I know if I'm probably hurting some of your causes this morning. I don't know. But I just love how she said, you know, I don't have much money, but I do have time and I do have energy. And, and that's the thing. A lot of us don't have much. Some of us just have like one apple, right? Or, or just, you know, a little bit of time and no money. We don't all have a lot necessarily. And so we can get restricted in what we think the possibilities are. But she didn't allow herself to be restricted, did she? That's a really important part to having a spirit of generosity. Do I have a spirit of generosity? We are in the book of Mark, if you want to open up there, Mark chapter 6. We're in a sermon series called Jesus More Than Enough. Talk about resources, he doesn't have an issue with that. He has more than enough. The question is, do we understand how much he really has? Do we? We're picking up in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be starting in verse 30. Now, if you recall, those of you who were here last week, we're coming back to Jesus and his disciples, because last week, we, Mark took a little detour on us. We've been reading all about Jesus, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he kind of tells us this debauched story about King Herod throwing this massive, basically an orgy, and it's disgusting in his palace, and Mark describes it for us. And it's with all the elite of the land, and it's just excess and gluttony and self-indulgence. And now, what a stark contrast. As we get back to Jesus and his disciples, we are going to see the reverse situation. As opposed to a palace, we're going to be in the desert. As opposed to the elite of the land, it's going to be the humble of the land. And opposed to an to a over-the-top gluttonous meal, it's going to be provision of what's necessary. Stark contrast where we've been last week and where we are this week. And as we look at it, as we go into the place where there appears to be little, we're going to find there's actually much more than meets the eye. So let's go there. Mark chapter 6, we're starting in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and they reported to him all they'd done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But, now there's that but, right? Many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. We'll stop there right now. So what's going on here? If you remember now two weeks ago, Jesus had sent his 12 disciples out on a, on a preaching, healing, exorcism, uh, exorcism of demons tour of Galilee. And they went all throughout Galilee in pairs of two. And it appears that people are recognizing them in verse 33, which means even the disciples now have become famous. It's not only Jesus. It's those guys who went around exorcising demons and doing miracles. So they had had a successful trip. And we see here in verse 30 that when they get, they get back to Jesus, you know, maybe they got around a campfire or something, but they start sharing all that God did. Can you imagine how exciting that meeting was? Like if you could sit in on that meeting, Bartholomew saying, 
whoa, you should have seen the look on people's faces when that lame guy, he, he hadn't walked in 30 years, and all of a sudden he got up and started walking. It was awesome, right? Can you imagine each of them saying, imagine if God used you to do a miracle. You'd be like, couldn't wait to talk about it. I'm sure they were even, oh, well, what about this guy? What about that? So there's great excitement. It's wonderful. There's nothing like joining God in what he's doing. And I'm sure maybe Jesus in that moment is sitting there saying, hey, they're finally getting this. Well, maybe. We'll come back to that. But there's nothing, nothing that compares to joining God when God is at work. And along those lines, there is one more thing I I want to tell you about, which is we haven't talked a lot about this, but Franklin Graham is doing a Northeast tour, if you haven't already heard about this. He's going to be preaching the gospel in various locations across New England in this month. And this is, it kind of reminds me of the, you know, as I read about this, I thought about this Franklin Graham's tour. He's going to be going around this region preaching the gospel. And hopefully God will work powerfully. And it's not in our backyard, so we're not directly involved in it. Springfield's the closest and Bridgeport in Connecticut, which is pretty far from here. But just want to let you know about it if you don't already, decisionnortheast.com if you want to be involved as a counselor or to bring a friend or whatever. But we pray that many might find Jesus Christ through that tour. And, and Franklin will have the joy of joining God in that. Just like the disciples had such joy in joining him when, in his work when they went out into Galilee and saw that God could actually use them. But the excitement of their sharing keeps getting interrupted, right? Right, verse 31. So many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. So here they are trying to share their stories, and they don't even have time to take a bite of an apple because they're constantly people are coming over to them. So Jesus, realizing their exhaustion, realizing they're tired, realizing they need rest, says, come away, let's go to a secluded place. The word there for secluded, by the way, is literally the word for desert or solitary, which is a desert place, a deserted place. Um, in Luke's gospel, we're told they go to Bethesda, which is on the uh, Bethsaida, on the other side of the Jordan River. We're not sure exactly because it would have been hard for the people to get over the Jordan River. But anyways, that's a whole other conversations with scholars. The bottom line is they got away, and Mark doesn't really care where they go. And what a relief this is, right? If you've been working and going out and working and working nonstop on this tour, and Jesus says, let's get away and get rest, that sounds awfully good, doesn't it? How many of you want to take a vacation right now? I mean, I'm ready for a vacation, right? I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in until June, but I can't wait to take some vacation. Summer can't get here fast enough. So this has got to be music to their ears. We're going to get away with Jesus, and we, can't, we, we got all this stuff we want to debrief and talk about. And so they, they, they do that. In 33, they go away in a boat to a solitary place. But unfortunately, that's about the only time of respite they actually get is in the boat, right? Can you imagine as they turn the corner maybe or whatever, and then they come up to the lakefront, and there are the people. Surprise! You know, it's like you're going on your honeymoon or something, and then you show up and like 500 people are there. Surprise! Oh, not quite what we had in mind, you know? So what a bummer. If I'm the disciples, I'm going, this is a bummer. Are you kidding me? Now we're going to see down in verse 44, which we're not going to get there for a little while. But down in 44, it tells us that there are 5,000 men, let alone women and children. So I'm picturing like a basketball arena-sized crowd here. Excel Center, all right? There is an immense amount of people. They're getting away. Why? 
Because they're tired, right? They need rest. This is not my idea of rest. 5,000 people saying, help me. And so they land. I don't know about you, but when I have my mind set on something, you know where I'm going? And I'm not, (laughs) you know where I'm going. And it doesn't happen. How do you react to that? Not nice, right? Now, I think, you know, on a low scale, maybe irritation. Uh, maybe step up from that is frustration, right? And maybe another step up is anger. Ever been mad at God because your expectations aren't coming out the way you expected them to? I got to imagine that they're pretty frustrated at this moment thinking they're going to get away with Jesus, and now here's this big crowd. How does Jesus respond? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Wow. Jesus is tired too. And also, don't forget this. The story of John the Baptist just was just told. This, and, and we're told over in Matthew that, that Jesus was deeply distressed by the news about John. He'd like some rest too. But he sees the need and he meets it. It's a very powerful thing. So my first point this morning is just simply that. Jesus meets the needs. He meets the needs compassionately. The scripture says he had compassion. The word for compassion is feeling deeply in your gut. It's a very about, you know, graphic word. But really compassion is the idea of seeing someone suffering and caring about it and joining in with it. And that's what Jesus does here. And and he joins in because he says they are sheep without a shepherd. That's a very uh, loaded phrase in the Old Testament. There's many places where it shows up. One example is Moses. When he was about ready to die, Moses says this to the Lord. He says, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to all things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. That's the first occurrence. It occurs several more times throughout the Old Testament. And it's in this regard, it's Moses saying, my people need a leader. They need someone to lead them. But it's more than that in the Old Testament. N.T. Wright, the theologian, brings out this. He says, sheep without a shepherd is a regular biblical way of describing the people of Israel when they have no leader or no king. That's how it's used in the prophets. That would be what would trigger people's minds when they hear the phrase, sheep without a shepherd. So Mark's readers are hearing that. That's a trigger to them. Once again, Never read a passage of scripture just by itself. Look at the context. Where did we just come from? What was the story before? King Herod. He's not, and I told you last week, he's not really a king. He just calls himself king. He's not really a king. And so now you've got 
Sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus is going to step up and be the shepherd. What's he saying? Here's the true king. Herod is a pretender king. Jesus is the true king. And here he is meeting his people where? In a palace? Where? In the desert. Does that sound familiar with the Old Testament? That's where God meets his people. That's where God shows forth his power. The desert, the, all, there's so much symbolism in what's going on here. You can't miss it. Mark is making clear who the real king of the Jews is, and it's Jesus. Matter of fact, in John chapter 6, when the same story is told, by the way, this miracle is the only one told in all four Gospels. That's how important it is. And it's important not only for the lesson it teaches, which we're going to get to, but for the symbolism of the whole thing. It's like Israel in the desert, and here's their true king, Jesus. Even though he looks nothing like an earthly king, like King Herod. Now, when he sees a need, what does he do? He meets it. He's exhausted, though. But that's what a real king does. A real king's put the needs of his people ahead of himself, even when he's exhausted. Now, listen, I'm not saying we should never rest. (laughs) And Jesus isn't against rest. He wanted to take them to rest. Why is he picking work over rest? I mean, Jesus, you know, maybe you're overperforming here, overachieving a little bit. You need rest. Jesus is going to take retreats. We've already seen one. We're going to see a couple more several times in the book of Mark. Jesus isn't against resting, but don't miss this. He's not against resting, but when God brings a need to your eyes and you see it, as Henry Blackaby says in Experiencing God, it is often his invitation for you to join him in what he's doing. But if I'm so fixated on my, it's my rest time, it's my time, I might miss where God wants me to join him. I like how one uh, commentator, Alan Cole, put it. Here's what he said. God does not usually lead us to see a need unless it's in his mind to meet that need. Often through us. Not always, but we have to at least be open to praying about, Lord, all right, I'm seeing that. Is that because you're asking me to join you? We need to go to him and see where the Spirit leads us. Not be closed-minded with our own set schedule that we follow like, you know, military officer. Often through us, unwilling though we may be. Are we willing when God interrupts our day? When God interrupts our plans for retreat or vacation? Are we willing to even be open? Am I even open to being used by God on my vacation? There's a couple that's in our life group and they've been sharing about how there's a a young single mom with two little kids that, that they've met that lives near them. And they've been telling us just how horrendous horrendous their situation is. I won't go into the details. It's just as bad as it can be. Really bad. Physically, emotionally, spirit, everything. And um, they were asking us to pray for them this week. And then they said, you know, this week when we were talking to her, she said to us, I'm very sure that if you guys hadn't come into my life, I'd be dead by now. I would have killed myself. I can't take this. Now, that couple could have easily seen that. Now, this is a couple that doesn't have tons of resources. They could have seen that and said, that's over my head. We can't do anything about that. Oh, well, Lord bless her. But instead, they said, Lord, would you have us be involved? And he said, yes. And they have very little. But the little they're doing has, at this point, saved the woman's life. Literally. Are we even open to God saying, I want to use you right now? 
How generous are we with our time and our energy? Jesus clearly has a spirit of generosity. There's no question about it. What about the disciples? Verse 35, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Um, Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Okay, just, just, so, actually, there's a lot, this is a reasonable thing to say, right? There's a lot of stuff here that's true. It is late in the day. Uh, it's a remote place. That's true. It's true the people don't have anything and they're, they're hungry by now. They've been there for a long part of the day. And it's true that the villages are far away. So if they're going to eat, they need to get going. All those things are true. So this is a reasonable and prudent request. It's also true that the disciples are exhausted and hungry. And maybe at the end of their compassion rope. Right? Send them away, Lord. They need, they need help. So, so what does Jesus do? That's a good suggestion. That's reasonable and prudent. Yes, let's send them away. Verse 37. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Now, just stop right there. I want, you, I want you to see yourself sitting in the Excel Center. How many of you have ever been in the Excel Center or the Boston Garden or Madison Square Garden or anything like that? Imagine someone saying, feed everyone in this building right now. A little overwhelming? Not only that, but in the Greek, the first word in verse 37 is humes. Humes is the plural you, you. Normally in Greek, the, 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 the noun, the person, is within the verb. So you don't need to use the pronoun in the Greek. Oftentimes you never see the pronoun in the Greek. You just look at the verb and it tells you right away, is it plural, first person, singular person? But here you've got an unnecessary pronoun, not necessary. Why do you think that, he, that Mark writes it that way? Why is it written that way? To emphasize what? You feed them. Now in John chapter 6, verse 6, we're told that Jesus did this to test them. Remember I said to you earlier, hey, maybe they've gotten it by now? Well, we're going to find out if they've gotten it. So he says, you feed them. Now look at their response. And they said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? You know, there's something called speech act theory that I learned in seminary. And it's sort of a, a fairly new interpretation model in the last 60 years. It was in, in 1961, a guy named James Barr came out with this. And his idea was that we often fail to interpret the scripture correctly because we try to do just a, a very scientific, almost enlightenment-oriented word by word. And we think if we do word by word, that's accurate. But when we communicate with somebody, what you say is not necessarily what you mean, right? And the way you say it, the act of the speech itself can speak as much about what you're saying as the words themselves. For instance, if I say to Leah, hey, the house is yellow, she'll be like, okay. But if I say, the house is yellow? Those two sentences, same words on paper, do they mean the same thing? The first one means what? The house is yellow. The fact. The second one, the house is 
Yellow? I'm questioning. Totally different meaning. So unfortunately with Scripture, we, we can't see the disciples saying these things. So, but, but I just want to tell you, if it were me directing this as a, a movie, <laughs> I, I would have them ask the first question, Hey, Jesus, why don't we send the people away? And then when he says, you feed them, what, are you kidding me? This is insane, right? Show their true colors. They're exhausted. I mean, I feel for these guys, right? My goodness, they've been pouring themselves out. Give them a break, Lord. Well, but, and, and once again, they're actually right on accurate. It would take more than a half year's wages. The literal there is 200 denarii. A denarius was one day's wage, so 200 days' wages over half a year's. Think about that. And they're probably right. It would take over tens and thousands of dollars to feed all these people, right? They don't have anything. They're fishermen. They haven't been fishing. You know, they've been out doing, doing walking around Galilee serving Jesus. They don't got no money in their pocket. And then are we to go and spend that much on bread? Is that wise? Is that good stewardship? I don't think so. And give it to them to, to just eat. Really? And then now here's another thing we don't think about very often. Where are they again? Tell me. They are in a? They're in the desert. The largest village around the Sea of Galilee was Capernaum. And most scholars believe there was about 3,000 people in Capernaum. What does that mean? These villages all around there are all tiny. And each one of them had a food market. But because these are small villages, these are small food markets. Now, it's like everyone around the Galilean Sea has gathered here. So in order to feed all these people, logistically, all right, even if you had UPS and FedEx and whoever else you had to help you drive around, right, think about just the logistical problem of just getting the food. Literally, you've got to go to like every surrounding village. It would take days, weeks, who knows how long to put all that together. This, this request is beyond unreasonable. It is, it is absolutely ridiculous. And it's also very consistent with the way God works in our lives. He loves to test us. He loves to test us. He does it all the time. And that's my second point this morning. Jesus challenges his disciples to meet an impossible need. If God came to you right now and challenged you to do something impossible, how would you respond? By the way, when he said you feed them, that was an imperative, which means it was a command. It wasn't a suggestion. Hey, how about we feed them? That would be a subjunctive. This was an imperative. He was telling them, I've made my decision you feed them. Every scholar I read agreed that their response was disrespectful. First of all, they don't call him rabbi, which they're supposed to, in reply to a command. So right there you see their true colors. Disrespectful. They're at the end of their rope. They've had enough. So Jesus is challenging them, and he's, he's, he's showing them their true colors here. And in challenging them, he's doing what he always does with us. He always tests us, not to humiliate. You know, I, I'm, I'm bringing this out just so that we could try to grasp the text a little more. Uh, Jesus, I do not believe Jesus is trying in any way to shame these guys. He's trying to do what a good coach does. 
He's just, he's just showing them where they've got a little weakness and flabbiness and trying to build it up. And it's what God does. He tests us. Back to Moses for a minute. If you remember when the people were in the desert, once again, that motif is strong in this passage. When the people were in the desert and they got manna, God was providing manna every day. Well, at first, the manna pancakes were fine and the manna shakes and all of that. But eventually, you know, you kind of run out of creative things to do with manna, right? And they started asking for meat. We want meat. Moses, here they are, millions now, in the middle, literally not even of a a secluded place that's still near the lake. This is in the middle of the, literally, the, the Arabian desert. Nothing nearby. We want meat. Okay, there is no meat. So here's what Moses says to God. It's so similar to this passage. Moses was troubled. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? I mean, most people estimate you're talking 2 million people. I just try to even fathom that in your brain. Obviously, that is a reasonable response, right? Wrong. Why? Because when he talked to God about it, God said, I want to meet that need because I'm going to teach them something. (laughs) Really? Now, see, that's the key. First, you have to discern, is is God calling me? We don't take ostentation steps just because it's cool to test God. Matter of fact, we're told, do not test the Lord. That's where prayer comes into place and fasting and seeking God. And is this your will? And if it is, no matter how audacious, step out. And he does, and God provides the need. It's what God does. Why? Because he wants to show us who he is. Because our freedom comes when we understand who God is. Let me say that again. Our freedom comes when we understand who God is. The reason our lives are short of what they need to be is a lack of understanding who our God is. And when he teaches us stuff, it's not to humiliate us, it's to show us more of him. It's an act of grace. That's why James 1, 2, and 4 says, consider pure joy whenever you face trials. Why? Because they... They mature you. They make you more into the image of Christ. He wants to bring you into fullness. The reason for the trial is not to make you miserable. That's what, that's what our, our hearts tell us. That's what the world tells us. But that's not what the history of God's working with his people tells us. I love Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Do we believe that? It's easy to say we believe it right now, but how about when the bills come in and we don't have enough money to pay that bill? Do we believe it then? Do we know his will? Are we praying and seeking his face to know what his will is and then believing for it? Seeing with kingdom eyes. Oh, that we might see the way God sees instead of seeing the way humans see. We need kingdom eyes. We need to be able to see. And someone who does is Jesus. Verse 39. Okay, how many loaves? For 38, how many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Okay, that's what we have to work with. Five pieces of pita bread. Picture five pieces of pita bread, okay? You got that in your head? 
The two fish, most scholars believe it was there were different types of fish in the Sea of Galilee. It's most likely little sardines. Two little sardines and five pita breads to feed the Excel Center. Does Jesus say, Pops, come on, that's not enough. What's wrong with you? No, he doesn't complain. What does he do? Then Jesus directed to have them all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. By the way, the, my translation has groups in both. It's actually two different words. In verse 39, the, the word for groups is symposia, where we get symposium. Just a regular word for group. It's nothing special. And then verse 40, they sat down in groups. That's the word prosia. That's a different word. And that means, that was a word used when you were planting your garden bed and you would put your flowers in rows. It was also used of the Roman military. They would create prosias of soldiers. So picture the Roman army whenever you see them in you know, neatly arranged rows. So that's what he's doing here. He's putting them in rows of hundreds and fifties. Why? Who knows? That took some time, I'm sure. Count off, you know, one to 50 and then start again, you know, whatever. But they put it, so just picture all of these rows. It kind of reminds me of, once again, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, when Israel would travel in the desert, they wouldn't just all hang around wherever they wanted to. If you remember, he said, to the south, I want these three tribes. To the east, I want, or yeah, east, east, I want these three tribes. And they were arranged in the desert. There was always order in the camp of God, always. And even here, in the desert, once again, God with her people ordering them. It's very interesting. They're all ordered. Plus, to make it easier to count, too, is probably why they could count the, count the crowd so easily. But anyways... Then he, then he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gives thanks and broke the loaves. That is the traditional blessing that every Jewish household would do every day with every meal, before and after. They would recognize that this bread is not here by accident and not take it for granted. They would recognize it was a gift of God, and then they would thank God. And after the meal, they would stop again, and they would go through the same thing and thank God for the meal they just participated in. All of that is exactly what's always done except for one thing. Only one thing's different from the way a Hebrew father would pray. He took the loaves and the fish and he looked up to heaven. Hebrew fathers always looked at the bread. They looked at what they were breaking. They did not look at heaven. That stands out to a Jew. And what that tells us is Jesus' vision is different than our vision. We focus on what's in our hand and say, this is about as far as I can go. I can't go any further than what's in my hand, what I can do. What is Jesus' vision? The bounty of heaven. Even when there's barely nothing in his hands, he's aware of the abundance in his father's house. And then he gives thanks. Wow. I like how Rebecca brought that out in the worship time. Giving thanks is so powerful. What an anecdote it is. An antidote, I should say. An antidote to complaining and misery and pessimism. Oh, how we need to be a people who give thanks, even when we have so little in front of us. There's so much to give thanks for, isn't there? Even in the worst circumstance. The woman in our video had very little, and she's an old lady, and she could have just said, you know, I'm 97 years old. I'm going to be 98. Everyone should be serving me. You know, I've, do I've done my time. I mothered for 
for, you know, decades. That's not her attitude at all. Grateful attitude. Wow. Power of thanksgiving. And then he broke the loaves, and then he gave them to his disciples. So good, let me just give the, the disciples a, they could have said, Lord, Lord, we're out of this, because this is silly. You know, I mean, we're going to feed three people, and everyone's going to be like, okay. But they, they join him. So good for the disciples. Hey, if Jesus is going to go down, we're going down with him. Who knows what they were thinking? That's what they said at the crucifixion. Well, if he's going to go, we're going to go with him. You know, at least they intended that. They didn't follow through. Here they follow through, so good for them. He gives it to the disciples, and they start distributing. And he divided the two fish, and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, we, it doesn't even describe to us how the miracle occurs. And all I can think of is that somehow, as he's giving it out, it's just the miracle is occurring in the, right in his hand, right? As he's breaking it out and giving it, there's just more. And you're reminded of the story in the Old Testament, remember? The oil that didn't stop flowing, right? Same kind of thing. God's provisions, is, his economy is so much different than ours. You give the first fruit, and then you trust that there's more where that came from. And so they keep giving. He keeps giving, and as, much as, as soon as his hand is empty, it's full again. His hand's empty, full again. Hand empty, full again. Wow. It's, gotta be, it's just got to be amazing. And look at this. It says that everyone ate and were satisfied. Not only that, but the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish that was left over. Now, everyone carried this little basket on their back. It was for their daily bread, and so that's most likely what they're referring to. In other words, not only did he supply for all the people, but he supplied for the workers, too. And the number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, I want you to, as I kind of come to a wrap here, the word I want you to focus on is satisfied. They were satisfied. The word there for satisfied means complete. What did we see over in King Herod's palace? Gl- excess. Gluttony. There's no gluttony here. God provides what everyone needs. That's all he promises, right? We may want more than that, but that's what he promises, and that's what he meets. He satisfies. He completes. That idea of completion also speaks to me about what we've been studying for the last five months. Shalom. What he's doing in the desert, in a place of dust, is he's providing shalom. Shalom is restoration. It's completeness in every way. Notice that he taught them earlier in the path. When he first got there, he met their spiritual need. But he doesn't leave there without meeting their physical need. And I would suggest that both are equally important to those people right there in that place and time. They need to eat. Physically and spiritually. God's concerned about the whole person. Emotionally, relationally, spiritually, physically. It all, it's all of God, by God, through God, and God cares for all of it. Shalom is what he wants. And that would be my third point this morning, just to wrap up here. And that is that Jesus creates what I would call, this is a pocket of shalom, (laughs) out of limited resources. In this place where you would expect there is nothing there, God provides through his son Jesus a rich banquet that satisfies everybody out of limited resources. It's very powerful. There's so much for us to break down out of this. And the way I want to do it is with apples.
So I don't know how many of you remember, 11 years ago, we did something called Jubilee. It was a fundraiser. It's been 11 years already. And we had a pastoral friend of ours, Wes Zinn, come. And he did this illustration. So I I don't think I can do it as well as he does, but I'm going to try anyways. So this is an apple, right? Just one apple. It's, It's good. It's delicious. It's nutritious. But it's just one apple. Not a lot. But right now, in my hands, it's all I have, right? Being that that's all I have, it's pretty precious to me. So if I give this to Leah, this is my apple, it's the only one I have. In my hands, I'm giving it to you. Both hands now, it's precious, okay? It's just, that's my apple. I'm giving you what I got, okay? Now, if I want to give you another apple, how I have another apple. And I want to give you another apple. What can I do? With, what do you need to do in order for... Well, no, remember, it's precious. <laughs> Got to use both hands. It's precious. You can't be, you know, casual with it. What do you need to do? Okay. Let's see what happens when you give it. What happened? You've got another apple. But what did you have to do? You had to give it. I have another apple. Oh, no, give it to the same person. And if I give it to you, okay, now what can you do with it? What are your options right now? Now look to your neighbor. What does your neighbor have? Oh. So what needs to happen if you're going to see the flow continue? Well, how about that? I got another apple. Keep going. Would you like that too? Sure. Great. Okay. What are you going to do with it? Okay, so let's stop for a minute. Let's say you ate the apple, which was an option, right? What would have happened at that point? Who would have been blessed? One person. But by passing it on, we now have four, five people. Well, actually four. There's someone with need, isn't there? So what should we do? Meet the need, and then guess what? God gives you another apple. Now think about this. What can you do with that? Let's think about it. What can you do with this apple? We've already said you can give it, you can eat it. What else could you do? You could throw it. I guess you could throw it. Waste it, right? You could waste the resource. That's right. What else could you do? Hide it. Cut it. Oh, you could plant the seed. You could take the seed. Okay, how many seeds are in the apple? Like, I don't have a knife, but how many? It's like six. So let's say five or six. How many trees are in each of those seeds? One. How many apples are in each of those trees? Are you seeing this? Let's just keep going while I show a couple of slides. No, just keep going. Keep the flow. Everyone's got to do the flow. Keep going. Just keep going. Now, look at Philippians 4.19, one of my favorite verses. Let's say it together. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. There is a difference between an abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset. An abundance mindset is focused on God's riches and all that he has for us can't give if you got hands are full. 
Not again. A scarcity mindset looks at what's in its hands and says, we can't do anything beyond this. It limits itself to what it can see. We need to understand God is a rich God. Now that doesn't mean we do anything we want. We seek his will, but when he invites us, we join him. Oh, I skipped something. Um, it's the Swindoll quote. I just realized. Look at this quote from Chuck Swindoll in his commentary. Ooh, I'm not supplying for you. I'm not God. <laughs> Look what Chuck Swindoll says. Jesus saw the hunger of the multitude completely different from the way the 12 did. Where they saw an impossible situation, Jesus saw a magnificent opportunity. Do you catch that? If I operate my life from the divine viewpoint, I interpret every circumstance as God's opportunity to accomplish his agenda. That is huge. Do you see the difference? If I operate my life from a divine viewpoint, I can interpret every circumstance as an opportunity for God to accomplish his will. That is very powerful. What kind of vision do I have? Do I see as God sees? Or am I limited only by what's in my mind? Oh, they're coming. Oh, they went this way. All right, we'll go. That's far enough. We're full. You get the point, right? You get the point. Let's go to that other slide you were at. In his, uh, Wes Zinn, who came up with this illustration, he wrote a book. It's right here called I Got This, Living in the Flow of God's Kingdom Economy. And he points out a really good thing. And I'm almost done here. Just share this with you. Poverty is not having. That's what poverty is. It's lacking. A spirit of poverty is a fear of not having. And I've shared with you over the years, I, I struggle with the spirit of poverty. Having grown up in poverty myself, I'm afraid of it. Prosperity is having. It's the opposite of pro- poverty. It's having. A spirit of generosity, though, is different from prosperity. It's a desire that others have. Now, how does this all work? So there's a difference between poverty and a spirit of poverty. You can be someone who's poor and yet have a spirit of generosity. In the scripture, remember the old widow. And she only gives what? Two mites. And Jesus says, not only is her giving greater, the way he words it is important. He says, she is given more. Now, literally, that's not true. On a ledger, the others have given much more than she has. But from a kingdom perspective, she gave everything she had to live on. She had a spirit of generosity, even though she was poor. And some of us are prosperous. Actually, I would go so far as to say almost the majority in this room is pro- are prosperous. And yet, like me, we struggle with a spirit of poverty. So they don't go together. And what we want to do is learn to have a spirit of generosity. Wes says this later on in the book to And I love this quote. He says, A spirit of poverty has a central concern for oneself. It says, I need to have. I need to make sure that I'll always have. Boy, I identify with that. By contrast, a spirit of generosity has a central concern for others. I want them to have. Oh, Lord, give us your eyes. And and notice the key. How come Leah kept giving? Why did you keep giving those apples? That was the only apple you had in your hand but you gave it anyway and made yourself poor, why did you give it? You wanted them to have it. Why, why else did you give it? I told you to, right? There was a command. <laughs> but also, what? Yeah, God will give you 
Because you knew I had more. We'll only give if we truly believe God has more. If we don't believe he has more, we are going to conserve like crazy. So do we have a spirit of generosity? I just want to close out application-wise. There are so many opportunities to be generous just in your life, like that couple I talked about. But here at Winterberry, financially, there are a few ways I want to point out. Deacon's Fund, that is a fund that we have that is a designated fund outside our budget that people give to outside their regular giving. And we give away thousands of dollars a year to people in our congregation who are struggling to pay the rent or buy oil or whatever they're struggling with. And uh, we document the need and, and we, we, you know, we make sure it's, it's a true need and then we meet it. That fund has actually gotten pretty low. So this is a good time to just let you know about that fund and would love for you to pray about giving into that fund, even sacrificially. We just mentioned, I won't say it again, Mother's Father's Day, this offering. This is, you know, true religion is to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. That's exactly what this offering is doing. It's going to save lives, save, literally save lives. Please think about giving to that. And then this vision we're talking about, we're talking about creating pockets of shalom. We're talking about something that's going to be much bigger than our limited Wintonbury resources. But if God is calling us to this, and this is what we're seeking to discern, if he is, we've got to trust him. We've got to walk out in faith and watch God provide. And so it's a real challenge for us. And, and I just want to end with a famous quote from a missionary you all know, Hudson Taylor, went to China, had very little. All the missions cut their support to him. He was there by himself with nothing. But he prayed and he sought the Lord. And this is his famous quote. Say it with me. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Father, that is true. And that's what we're seeing in this passage this morning. Your work done your way will never lack your supply. Lord, help us to believe you. Help me to believe you. Help each of us to believe that you have all the abundance we could possibly need and more than that. It's limitless. Father, help us to look to heaven and not to our hands. Help us, Lord, to, to tune our ears and our hearts to you in prayer and fasting and saying, Lord, speak to us, show us your way. And, and not, may we not limit what you might tell us to do with our reasonableness. So, Father, please, where there's presumption, help us to see it and, and not go there. But where there is your call, help us to go in full faith that you might be glorified and that you might be seen to be who you are, which is king of the world and the all-providing one. Show forth your glory through us as we walk by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want an apple, they're up here. If you want to be prayed for, Jim and Marilyn would love to pray with you. Seek the Lord.